Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, today we're going to look at the voice of hope, the voice of hope. And I'm going to begin by reading our verses, and then we'll continue. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 reads, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. The voice of hope. This is written by a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. And today we're going to talk about this prophecy. It is a a prayer of restored faith in God. It is a word of hope to us today of his promised redemption. But before we consider the verses of the message today and what it is that Zechariah said, we need to look at the one who is speaking those words. We need to know a little bit more about Zechariah because what takes place is Luke introduces them at the beginning of chapter 1. It's actually how he begins his gospel. And then later on in the chapter, he brings the prophecy around. So let me introduce you to this person, Zechariah, who is actually writing these words today. Zechariah was a priest, and it tells us that he was the son of Abijah. Now, Abijah was not his father, but it was one of his grandfathers of some number of greats in generations past, because Abijah was the head of his family lineage, and Abijah was one who was appointed as a priest under King David. You see, what Luke is doing to us here is he's introducing us to the family lineage of who Zechariah was. And he's kind of positioning him to understand just how impactful what we're about to see really is from his life. And so Zechariah came from a long line of service to the Lord that extended all the way back beginning under King David, which in the history of the Israelite people was the greatest king of all. But Luke also tells us that his wife, had a strong family lineage as well. Her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was the daughter of Aaron. And listen, her family lineage is nothing to scoff at. The daughter of Aaron, yes, that Aaron, the one who stood by the side of the greatest prophet Moses. 
Again, this is not her actual father, but her grandfather of a number of greats gone by. What he's saying to us is is the fact that we're not dealing with newbies here. We're not dealing with people that didn't know what they were doing or just gotten into this. We're dealing with people that for generation after generation after generation knew the things of God and walked with God. Zechariah and Elizabeth both, it says, were righteous before God and they walked blamelessly in the Lord's commandments and statutes. I don't know about you, but I don't think there's ever anything that could be written in someone's bio line than this and not written by them, but written about them. That is a high and holy compliment. It tells us that their faith was not only external for others to see. They didn't just live away in order to impress the people they wanted to impress, but rather it was a faith of their heart. It was genuine, the faith that God sees and where God evaluates the life of a man. They knew what it meant to serve the Lord because they had not only walked with God for many years, but they came out of a gener- they came out of a lineage that had walked and served God for generations. One commentator says it this way, Zechariah and Elizabeth represent the best of Old Testament piety, and as a faithful remnant, they receive the good news of the gospel. That's potent, friends. That's powerful for us. And that's what we need to understand who it is that Zechariah was and and who it is that is speaking to us today. But with this in mind, we need to ask another question. Because there is a situation about Zechariah just before these verses that is important. Zechariah was mute just immediately before these verses are shared. And we have to ask the question, why was Zechariah mute? Why was he mute? You see, immediately prior to the prophecy, he was unable to speak. And it arose because when the angel appeared to him in the temple, in the the serving of the Lord, when he was practicing the, the leadership under the Lord's work, if you will, he was interceding for the people. He was doing the duties of his religion and in a good way, I mean that. The angel appeared to him. You know, Sadly enough, pastors should not be surprised when the Holy Spirit shows up, but sometime I confess we are. I mean, isn't that why we do what we do? Right? And that's what happened to Zechariah. The angel appeared to him in the, in the process of ministering for the people before the Lord, and it shocked him. <laughs> and so he, he's called unaware, and the angel tells him that your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby. Now, here's the big deal with that. They were well beyond childbearing years. They were old. They were old. And because of that, it shocked him. And he said, uh, how is this going to happen? And the angel said that he just simply didn't believe. That that's what the angel understood his words to be. You see, mute, this is the reason Zechariah was mute. Mute was an act of discipline from God on Zechariah's unbelief. God through his angel, was disciplining Zechariah, his servant, because he didn't believe. But, but we have to also ask then, why mute? Why didn't he practice some other form of discipline? Why didn't he just take him out to the woodshed, get it over with, and come back and let everything go on? Well, there's a reason for that too, friends, because Zechariah, his whole livelihood revolved around this one thing, speaking for the Lord. Speaking for the Lord. And you see, as a priest, his whole life was ordained, as Second Chronicles says, to pronounce blessings upon the people in the Lord's name 
forever. You see, the people would gather and wait, and then they expected to hear Zechariah speak or one of the other priests to, to receive a word from the Lord. That's, that's the only way. If you'll remember where we are historically in this, that there's been over 400 years of, of no new revelation, that from the ending of the Old Testament in Malachi, that, that chronologically God had not given a new prophecy whereby he was leading his people. And that is the way that God led his people in days of old. He spoke through the prophets. There had been no new prophecy. So functionally, there was no new word. They were just holding on to the last thing they heard him say. And so when they would come, they would want the priest to speak a word from God to remind them and Zechariah being mute upon the day that he was the one chosen to offer up prayers for the people, he should have come out and had something phenomenal to say for the people who needed to hear something phenomenal from God. And he was mute. That's embarrassing for someone who's about to stand up in front of a crowd of people and supposedly have something to say. You see, mute was a sentence not only upon the work of his whole life, uh, not only upon his work, but upon his whole life. And here's what I want you to see. Why I'm taking this time to talk about Zechariah is unbelief muzzled Zechariah. Not just of the work he was doing, but of the very purpose of his life. You see that? Unbelief had stripped from him not a moment of importance, but the totality of why he was there. And friends, what I want you to understand today is that the work of God is going forth in the world by the word of God, his truth, that, that fundamental to our understanding of God in all things is that the way he works in the world today is by sending forth his word in the world. And by his word, at work in the world, his truth is light and that light is life for us. He's setting up the living word who will come. When his word is wrongly spoken or spoken by one wrongly authorized, it makes a statement about the one whose word it actually is. You see, God's name is on the line when those who use it speak for it. And God considers of greatest importance those who speak his name that he is the one that makes them worthy to speak his name. You get into the New Testament, you get into First and Second Timothy and Titus, this is why Paul spends so much time talking about the qualification for elders and those who will handle the word in front of the church and why character is the establishment of their qualification, a character that is godly. That's what's taking place here with Zechariah. God considers that of greatest importance that those who speak his name are made worthy by them and those that, that, that speak his word first and foremost believe what they're saying. And that their belief is demonstrated not by lip service, but by obedience of life, where true belief is demonstrated. That they themselves, first and foremost, are holding to God's word by faith. You see, faith in God's word is essential for one who would stand to speak that word to others. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It means that they've taken hold of what God has revealed. God, friends, is never interested in baseless words that are uttered for entertainment 
that are uttered to impress and that are uttered for personal gain. He commands his truth to flow by a tongue of those who would hold to his truth in their own life. And the one who does not believe in the one he serves or, shall we say, speaks for, should not pass out blessings in his name as priests were ordained to do. That's what God is saying by muting Zechariah. Sadly, sadly enough, today it's all too common as it was in Zechariah's day. But it never goes unnoticed by God. Don't ever believe that. Zechariah was made mute because he did not believe. But friends, God's word will not be denied nor will it be thwarted. Mute was a sentence on Zechariah's work and his life. As we said, unbelief muzzled the very purpose of his life. But here's the reason. In order to discipline him against a false dichotomy. A false dichotomy. In other words, it did not, God did not want him to stand and say one thing and believe another with his life. He, he was disciplining him so, so that, that he wouldn't bear false witness and break a commandment. This is grace, friends. This is good. Like, like God is working to prevent Zechariah from hurting himself, if you will. Because to stand and say something that you don't believe in is to bear a false witness. And that is to break the second commandment of God. And then to not believe in the one in whose name he claimed to speak before others. God takes that seriously. You see, God muted Zechariah's mouth so that he would not speak contrary to the belief that he held in his heart. But know this, now that we've kind of Throwing him under the bus in some sense maybe. He doesn't stay under the bus. I want you to understand this. God is the one that chose Zechariah and Elizabeth to use them. You see that? There's a lot of hope in that. Because even in his failure here, failure that he probably didn't know initially going in, God chose to use them. And his muteness, listen to me Christian, Zechariah's muteness was a moment of discipline not a terminal decision by God. Well, you, we need to hold on to that today. A moment of discipline, not a terminal sentence. Get this, receive this, because you very often will find your own self in moments of discipline by God. Why? Because God disciplines those that he loves. Discipline likely for the Christian is the greatest expression of love, of God's love in our life. We need to understand why he uses it. He wanted to turn Zechariah's heart in repentance to believe and to proclaim the one that he knew to be true. He didn't just want Zechariah to stand up and say something for him. He wanted to, him to believe it in his bones. He wanted him to live it so that when he said it, people would believe it. That's what God is working for here. And I assure you of this, every second of Zechariah's muteness felt more like an eternity to him. I mean, the instant his tongue no longer worked, I can tell you this, he knew immediately what God was doing. He knew, man, God has put his finger upon the unbelief of my heart. He has shined his light on my darkness. And it served as a reminder of God's goodness and of God's faithfulness as it was locked up inside of him. But while Zechariah couldn't get it out, it was working its transformation within like never before. And within Zechariah, there was a level of faith rooting deep within him 
like he had never known. Friends, Zechariah's voice of hope in God is not because of the miracle that transcended nature by which his wife became pregnant. Sometimes at Christmas, I think we get caught up with the, the sham wow, the hoopla. We like to talk about miracles. And our God is a miracle-performing God, but it's never to impress us nor to entertain us. It's to point us to the real meaning. Miracles are signs. And the sign of Elizabeth's pregnancy that transcended the natural form of her childbearing years were to point us to the child that she would bear and the purpose he would bring into the world. That's what we learn here in their life. But because God by discipline, this is why this is such a voice of hope. By his discipline, he birthed a new depth of belief, first and foremost in Zechariah, by the very revelation of his word. So know this today, when the gospel is proclaimed, when the word of God is taught, God is working for the salvation of people. And these words should not be uttered from a man who, who does not know a, a deep in his bones what it is that he is speaking of. For, for Zechariah here is one, he's walked it, he's felt it. At this point in time, he's been shut up in it for nine months. Kept mute. And now he's about to be released to tell it. And the voice of hope that you hear today in the prophecy of Zechariah, friends, is not some hollow holiday feel good. Rather, it is the voice of hope that exalts and anoints the born and risen Lord Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. You see, the reason I start with this is because the reality of what was taking place in Zechariah's life is the reality of what's taking place across every life in the room today. We don't prepare our hearts for the coming Lord Jesus as good Christian people, we will offer him a little bit of the season and enjoy the rest of it for ourselves. But it's all his glory. It's all his glory. So as you hear today, I hope you will allow the Spirit of God by his kindness to prepare your heart by the work of his Spirit to receive what he has for you today. And I want you to understand that the voice of hope that declares to us says this, Jesus is our eternal hope because even when our faith is weak, God's promise remains strong. Jesus is our eternal hope because even when faith is weak, God's promise remains strong. And friends, here's how you should be applying this throughout the message today. Don't just keep asking yourself, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. That's important. And if you don't believe in Jesus today, I'm appealing to you with every sense of energies that I can to turn from your sin and put your trust in him. But if you are a Christian here today, I want you to know this, that the very work of God by his spirit is to do exactly what we have seen done in the life of Zechariah. He is going to be revealing where doubts and unbelief reside still in you in the situations of your life, in the circumstances of your life, where you have yet to fully resign yourself and to give yourself to Jesus Christ, God is working in that place today to bring light to darkness, to bring hope to unbelief, to bring faith that restores us in His salvation for redemption. 
I want to offer to you today three reasons from Zechariah's prophecy why Jesus is our eternal hope that he sets forth for us. The first reason we see in verses 68 to 69 is this, that Jesus is God's salvation, his Messiah, his Messiah. You see, Zechariah begins with a blessing to the Lord and and declaring his power as a response from his promise long held that is now realized. I mean, if you can imagine the pressure that builds up in a pipe when the water or the air continues to flow and the end of that pipe holds strong. So Zechariah's tongue was held, was held, was held until the Spirit of God released it. And when he released it, Zechariah wasn't mad at God, wasn't angry or bitter at God. He was blessing God with the very first word that came across his lips. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. You see, this is not an ordinary promise that he has learned in his time of muteness. And it surely is not some vain, religious, trite, throwed promise at God to give him a little bit of the season. Rather, it is a promise so unique, it even remains to this day unmatched, that God has visited and redeemed his people. Friends, this truth right here splits time, splits the calendar, splits heaven and earth, splits the spirit world completely apart. Because the one thing that separates Jesus Christ from every other who dare claim divine status is this. Instead of requiring people what they must do to achieve God, God comes to us and does for us. What we cannot do for ourselves, the very essence of the gospel. This is what he begins to bless the Lord for. He has visited and redeemed his people. God has come to us to save us. God's power is displayed, and in that display is the perfect picture of his compassionate heart for people. You see, God does not claim to save us from far off. He comes and he looks upon his people, and out of compassion, care, and love, he redeems them. We see the picture of God as a loving, attentive father to the cries and to the cares and concerns of his children and who comes to meet those needs. God accomplishes salvation, he says, by the raising up of a horn of salvation. The Old Testament phrase, horn of salvation, is one that signifies for us strength and majesty and and power. When it was used, this is what was being declared, that this horn of salvation, it was a salvation that was powerful, it was majestic, it was glorifying in every way, and it was strong to save. And this is the fulfillment of God's promise that Zechariah knew, but listen to me, he knew it, but he didn't know it. And that's why he was mute. Had a lot of knowledge about God, but hadn't allowed that knowledge to move from his gray matter to his heart. Zechariah would have been very familiar with the phrase. He'd read it many times in the psalm. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Boy, I bet in that instant, in that instant, all of the times he had cited this verse from memory flashed in front of his eyes. And when he blessed the Lord, he said, I know him as the horn of my salvation today in a way I've never known him before because of what he's revealed to us. You see, Jesus is the Savior because of his power being supreme. That's what Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4 teaches us. 
that, that Jesus' power is supreme over the prophets of old who were powerful people because of the anointing of God over them. His power is supreme over the angels who, who announced to Elizabeth and Mary just in the narrative that we're talking about today of what would actually take place. And, and there would be a miracle, miracle of nature that, that, that God transcended the normal flow with Elizabeth. And then there would be a miracle of conception with Mary that, that God would uh, do an end run around man and he would conceive his son in Mary himself. This is the power that Hebrews 1 through 4 teaches. He says it's, it's more powerful than the prophets and the angels because of who he is. Who is he? He's God. That Jesus is God who has come to us. And, and God's great power to save is Jesus. It's, it's in him alone. He and he alone is our hope. And he is our only hope. Our only hope. Friends, what, what the prophecy of Zechariah, the voice of hope, wants to strip from you today is where the unbelief and the doubt in God's word has caused you to put your hope in some other story, some other narrative, some other hero in your life. You know, at this time of year, well, let me just ask it this way. We, we like the stories, don't we? Do you know what has 15 actors, four settings, two writers, and one plot? Think about this for a moment. I'll give those to you again. They're very specific. 15 actors, four settings, two writers, and one plot. Now, some of you want to say it, but you're like, I'm in church. I don't know if I can say this. Is it a Hallmark movie? I would say you're very close. It's actually 632 Hallmark movies that only have 15 actors, that only have four settings, two writers, and one plot. Hallmark movies are the only movies in the world that it's impossible to actually have a spoiler alert. We know what's going to happen. Within the first 60 seconds of the movie, already the tension is like you know exactly who's going to be together by the end of the movie. And the last 60 seconds of the movie is when the kiss comes and everything flies off into goodness. Right? We love happy endings. We are saps and suckers for happy endings. Now, if Hallmark is not your flavor then you probably recently have spent far too much time at a far too ungodly hour of the day to spend far too much money standing in line to see your flavor recently, right? Just so the rebellion can conquer the empire one last time. Friends, I want you to know this 14-year-old who was introduced, my life has been completed. It is finished. Number nine has occurred. I mean, no matter how sappy, no matter how twisty the plot, we love stories of what? Happy endings. We love redemption. We have to know there's hope. And you see what Zechariah is teaching us here today is that Jesus, our great hope, is here. He is our only hope. And what the Spirit is going to be applying even right now in your heart is, is Jesus the only hope that you're holding in your heart? 
Because there is no redemption without Him. And as the voice of hope through Zechariah tells us today, because of Jesus, no one who believes in Him will be without hope. Because the voice of hope tells us not how we can get to God, but how God has gotten to us and brings us to Him. You see, friends, Jesus is our eternal hope because even when our faith is weak, God's promise remains strong. The second reason we should put our hope in Jesus today is because Jesus perfectly serves God's purpose and our good in salvation. Look at verses 70 to 75. He begins to tell us not only that Jesus is our hope, but how it is that he has become our hope and perfectly satisfies God's purpose and our good in salvation. He proclaims that our salvation is the will and the work of God, not of us. Verse 70. He tells us what God is doing and what he's been about doing from the very beginning. That God has declared his salvation from the prophets of old in his word. That everything we've heard in the Old Testament, that maybe we haven't gotten a new word in over 400 years, but not one word of what we heard before that was for naught. Every word was pointing to the one who has come. You see, friends, salvation in God is not a momentary act of personal experience, but rather it is the eternal will of God that is anchored in Jesus Christ. This is salvation. Listen to how it is that Zechariah shares that hope, that our salvation is in Jesus and it is sufficient to bring us to God. Verse 71 says, he has saved us from our enemies. and Not just the enemies that we identify, but the true enemies that were keeping us from God, namely Satan and sin. And he speaks of this salvation in such a way that makes it absolutely Certain. And here's what Paul says when he echoes in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure. That's such a small word, but it comes with a punch. I am sure. What is he sure of? That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. This is what he is sure of. I am sure that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me, friends. When we know we are not and cannot be defeated which is what Zechariah is saying us today. We become empowered to relate differently to God, to others, and even to our enemy. Because our enemy does not threaten us anymore. We are overcomers because we believe in the one who has overcome, the New Testament says. We can even pray and labor for our enemy's redemption. You see, salvation in Jesus is so sure It gives us hope that is eternal, that never perishes, spoils, or fades. And it gives to us a freedom to extend that salvation even to the very ones that we feared before, our enemies. Verse 72 and 73 goes on to say that Jesus is God's mercy and grace that has been promised to us. My kids used to say when they were younger, they don't now, they've learned new ways to work me. Dad, remember what you said? Oh. I hated it when that was the opening line. Why? Because the question identified the fact that no, in fact, I don't remember what I said. Or I do remember it, but I also remember that I didn't remember it. And it didn't happen, right? I mean, what they were doing was using my words against me. 
in that little innocent, cute way that they knew how to do and bend me over and work me over. I, I, I confess, friends, as a father, I failed my, by forgottenness far too many times. But I want you to let this settle in very deep with you right now. Zacharias telling us, God never forgets. Not once. Not ever. God never forgets. And lest we think he might, know this, that, that from this point forward in the New Testament, we are told where Jesus is today, that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding. And he is the one sitting next to God the Father that continues to remind us that God is remembering his covenant as he intercedes for us before the Father. God never forgets. The fulfillment of promise in Jesus assures us of the truth that he will come again. You see, the real point of Christmas is not just to celebrate God's coming, but to remind us that God will come again. And the way we live today should reflect the way we believe that in fact God is faithful to his promises and he will come again and we wait for that. Our hope births our anticipation. God remembers us to remind us of him by his word. And our hope in God is anchored in knowing Jesus who is the living word and then walking in the light of that word which holds us until his promise again in his second coming will be fulfilled for us. And friends, when we know God's promise is secure, when we are sure, here's what occurs. Our hope is set so our steps can remain stable in life. Walking with him, And that is where our peace comes. And that's what we see next in verses 74 and 75. Jesus saves that we might serve God without fear in holiness and in righteousness. Did you hear that? We serve God not to get holy and to get righteous, not to earn it, but because he has placed it on us in Jesus Christ, we can walk in it. This salvation that Zechariah knew is why God's discipline in muting his unbelief didn't create bitterness or anger within him, but rather when his lips were released, it poured forth in blessing and praise. You see, sometimes we get angry and bitter about God for his work in our life of redemption. I don't like the way you did it. I don't like what you did. I don't like the reason that you did it, God, or whatever it might be. And instead of listening to the God who loves us out of his discipline for us, we let it simmer and burns more of our unbelief within us. But in Zechariah, what we see is that he recognized what God was doing. And he allowed God to convict him and to turn him in repentance. To say, God, even though I didn't trust in you and believe and I doubted you, I do believe. I repent. I turn to you. And that for nine months, that repentance was taking hold within him. And that truth was transforming him at a soul level of his life and his service became an expression of his love for God you see when we serve the Lord that is our outward demonstration of our love for God when God blesses and hear me disciplines us that is his demonstration of his love for us God loves you too much to let you just continue in unbelief and Zechariah reminds us of that that's why the voice of hope is so potent for us today 
That, that, that in both his love and his saving power that is working within us, we can rest confident in what he is doing. You see, salvation sets us free to live for God's glory in all of life. When, when the shackles fell, the praise flowed. That's how God wants us to live. So sure of his salvation that even his discipline produces more praise within us. C.H. Charles Spurgeon said these words, I kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That's what he's saying. I, I have to confess to you too often, I've cursed the wave. Standing next to the rock of ages, I looked back and said, boy, God, I didn't like that. I love you, but I hated that. And that's functional denial. That's functional unbelief that God can use that to get me to him. Zechariah didn't do that. Zechariah teaches us that God's discipline is God's grace to us. Lottie Moon, you've heard me quote this many times. She was just over four feet tall. And so in stature, not a very big woman at all. But I'm telling you, she bought a one-way ticket to China to tell people about Jesus. And through her life, she became one that is unbelievably great in presence. And here's the one quote from her that I love the most. I have a firm conviction. Are you, are you tracking with me? You seeing this little four foot tall lady? I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. <laughs> and all of a sudden, seeing her in my mind, I believe her. And I fear her just a little bit. Don't you want to live that way? Don't you want to live not so strong in your hold, but so firm in what is holding you that you are sure there is nothing that this world can throw at you that will shake you and move you? God, God fulfills every small promise through the ages to establish our faith in this one promise that Jesus is our hope. Jesus serves God's purpose and our good and salvation by setting us free to serve God in all of life. And that's the second reason that Zechariah provides for us for why we should believe in him. And I want to pause here for just a moment and ask you this. Is your hope secure? Is your hope sure? I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about, oh yeah. I'm not talking about just for the instant. I mean, is it rock of ages kind of sure? Is it immovable? Is it immortal? Kind of sure. Is it eternal? Because it is anchored in Jesus Christ. Friends, if it's not, that's what God wants for you. And if you're not a believer here today, you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, the Spirit of God is inviting you and calling you to do that very thing today by repenting of your sin. And you think everything you're having to let go is the most secure thing about your life. But I'm telling you, everything you've taken hold of doesn't hold anything to the one who wants to take hold of you. Will you let him? And some of you, you're holding to little things, knowing who Christ is, thinking he'll be okay with it. He'll get over it. He'll ignore it. He'll just dismiss it. And I'm telling you, what the Spirit is doing today is putting his 
light of the truth of God's word on those areas of unbelief and doubt, not to condemn you, not to guilt you into making a decision, but to invite you to come and walk in the light and be done with that little thing for the rest of your life. Will you trust him today? You see, happy endings are not the hope of people. As we see them today. Happy endings are not the trademark of Hallmark and they're not the trademark of Hollywood. Glorious endings are the divine eternal will of Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants for you. He is our eternal hope because even when our faith is weak, is your faith weak today? In some area, some instance, some circumstance, some decision, some situation. Are you having trouble holding on to God? I want you to know that even when your faith is weak, God's promise remains strong. He's here for you today. The third reason he wants you to trust in Jesus is because Jesus fulfills God's promise for us. Now here's where Zechariah begins to talk about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist served a distinct role in God's plan in the coming of Jesus. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament tradition. He was also an explicit sign from God. So the signs that we have was not only the miraculous nature of Elizabeth's pregnancy that, that, that birthed John the Baptist, but the very ministry of John the Baptist himself was a sign to point to the Messiah because he became one who was a voice crying in the wilderness prepared ye the way for the Lord. So God prepared his people to receive the living word by the spirit-empowered preaching of the word through John the Baptist. And Zechariah received that prophecy because he knew God's word in Malachi 3.1. Again, the word of God in his life, all of a sudden that had taken root, now began to bear fruit in a new way. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I'm telling you, suddenly in the instant of that angel's appearing in the holy room where Zechariah found himself, he recalled Malachi 3.1 because the word of God that had been implanted within him all of a sudden began to bloom and blossom and bear fruit within him and he knew that the promise of God that he would send the messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord had come and that's who his son would be. Do you see how it was that the knowledge of God's word that had been implanted in Zechariah's life was the very light that God used to defeat the doubt within him? God's word in you will do no less than it did in Zechariah, friends. It gives faith to overcome our doubts. It gives us faith to overcome our unbelief. And when it is present in us, we can know it and we can place our hope in it and we can put our faith in the one who is it, Jesus. The birth of John the Baptist reminded Zechariah of God's promise that he will save, that there are none who are too far outside of his reach, that with Christ all have hope in him, that no sin can hold from God, anyone from God today because he forgives that sin when we repent. That there is no darkness that can keep you separated from God because when he saves, he transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the eternal light of his son. That there is no condemnation that remains for the one who rests and trusts in Jesus because he cleanses and he forgives 
every sin as he begins to guide us in the light of his truth. Jesus is the one who fulfills God's promise for us in salvation. He is our eternal hope because he is God's salvation who perfectly serves God's purpose and our good in that salvation. Friends, Jesus is our eternal hope because even when our faith is weak, God's promise remains strong. Now I'm going to close with this way. Zechariah's story is a story of misplaced trust, misplaced hope. And because of that misplaced hope, it fueled doubt. Yes, he was passionate about God, but even passion can become legalistic when we think it indebts God to us in some way. One final issue that we really must not overlook is in verse 18 of Luke 1, when he says to the angel, how shall I know this? Do you know what that question is? At first reading, you might believe it's an honest inquiry, but the angel, by the eyes of God looking into his heart, said, that's not honest inquiry, that's cloaked unbelief. You are hiding your unbelief in Christianese, Christian terms, Christian clothes. And God sees that. Another way it could be stated is this. God, how are you going to prove, that this, uh, prove to me that this is you? You see, when we put God to the test, we create a trap for ourselves. And we must be very careful to avoid that. Zechariah doubted God's word and didn't believe that he would do what he said he would do. And when the angel made him mute and the discipline of God came upon his life, He had a decision to make. Would he believe God? Would he turn away? Would he trust? Or would he go the way that he knew? You see, friends, doubt and unbelief have serious consequences in life. It caused Zachariah to miss the joy of the active participation of all God was doing in his life. And I am confident he didn't necessarily see his own doubt and unbelief But he questioned God's ability and willingness to work. And that's where you should see your doubt. You don't look into your heart and go, man, I'm really doubting God here. I'm really questioning what God can do here. That's not the way you see it. But you will hear God's word and you'll go, is he really going to be faithful to that for me? How will I know, God? I mean, how are you going to do this for me? You see that? He turns it from a God-centered to a me-centered issue. The most righteous of people are never beyond the most subtle doubt and even unbelief. And you must beware of this. Beware the most subtle doubt or the most subtle unbelief or the most subtle me-centered faith in heart and mind. And beware the ways you dismiss God's work because of what you know as the reality in the world. Your perception of the way you see things Zechariah doubted because he allowed situational details of his life to form a greater reality for him than the promise that God had already revealed through his word. Are you doing that today? Are you struggling to trust God in an area or to believe him or to obey him because you think there's a better way, because you think a word that you've heard or an encouragement you've received or something you can get in this world is actually more hopeful than what God has commanded you in? The most subtle doubt grounded in the strongest rationale will grow the greatest unbelief every time. And the voice of hope tells you that God's promise is one that cannot be shaken and will never perish, spoil, or fade. The question is, 
Will you believe him? Will you believe that Jesus is our eternal hope? Because even when your faith is weak, God's promise in him remains strong. And will you put your trust in him today? Let's pray.